This is a, a time for some discussion. And uh, so those of you who've uh, uh, got any questions or things you'd like me to clarify or um, anything that uh, you'd like to, to uh, follow up from, the, uh, the, the reflections that I gave, please uh, don't be shy. There's a microphone. Okay. Okay, good. So, so please don't be shy. Anyone who'd like to ask anything, just uh, fire away. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Just in the context of your talk so far, I was wondering about um, population growth um, and how clearly unsustainable that appears to be. Uh, do you have any reflections, perhaps or interest in what your current thinking might be around about um, politicians, of course, saying so little about this, and uh, maybe even religious leaders themselves, do they have more of a role they could be playing to raise the consciousness of this rather difficult issue? Mm. Thank you. Well, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> I was at a conference with the Dalai Lama a number of years ago, and um, he turned to me and he said, uh, uh, with a, a number of Buddhist teachers, with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, and uh, the, um, the question of birth control came up, and, and he sort of turned to me and said, so, Bhikkhu, what, what do you think about this? And I said, well, I'm doing my bit. <laughs> <laughs> But, and then I thought, well, actually, you know, in, in, in even in a more general sense, your Buddhism is also about rebirth control as well. So but <laughs> that's, a, that's a different subject. But, but um, yeah, the uh, um, it was you know, many many years ago in the back in the nineteenth century, I think uh, they uh, <coughs> there was people started to do the do the maths on the uh, on the. Uh, projections of the human population and, and getting to be concerned about the um, uh, what the uh, the impact of that would be and uh, so for my for myself i'm uh, uh, I can see that the um, uh, the impact of the ever increasing human population is is enormous there are obviously uh, difficult uh, issues uh, in relationship to that because uh, in uh, in many countries where they don't have socialized medicine or a uh, pension schemes the, uh, the historically the way that you have provided for your old age is having you know uh, enough children to be able to you know if you go out to work if you get married and go off to different provinces and uh, you know one or two stay home and look after mom and dad and that's that's how the elderly were have been taken care of. So there's strong, um, say, uh, uh, social forms, you know, strongly established traditions and forms whereby you know you you, you need to have uh, a larger number of children so that uh, the family will be provided for into into old age. Um, the um, so that's a you know one element of, of the. The picture. Uh, I feel that the the degree to which that you can both you know, reduce the uh, the um, the level of population growth and also uh, create socialized medical forms that are, where the, by the elders are, are looked after in a um, a uh, caring and you know, well balanced and and um, appropriate way is would be the, the ideal way to go and that. Uh, and so, um, yeah, 
uh, I would you know, thoroughly encourage that. As a as a Buddhist as a Buddhist monastic, then uh, I can't possibly um, encourage you know, uh, birth control by abortion and such, uh, but more the sort of preventative forms of birth control. I would heartily support. Also, we have the eight precepts. You know that. Uh, <laughs> That uh, those who wish to live on a live a life uh, of uh, celibacy you know, and that kind of restraint, uh, that's um, that's uh, you know, very worthwhile. But there's uh, usually an extremely small uh, proportion of the population that are interested in living that way. Was there a particular um, uh, interest or reason behind the question? No, I think just just generally is um, what appears to me to be um, one of the greatest factors that could affect the sustainability that we're trying to talk about. <clears throat> but there's because it is such an unpopular vote loser, the politicians speak very little about it. Um, disappointingly, the key religious leaders in our in our country, let alone internationally, seem to have a, a lack of a cohesive voice in the subject. So taking on board what you're saying about care of the elderly being one element, but where is the encouragement really to, um, to take it a step further than perhaps we've reached so far? Well, I, I think uh, it's one of those things that uh, bringing that into the, the, the broader dialogue is a worthwhile thing, that uh, if you have a particular interest in that. Uh, um, the, uh, I think the, the, the book, The Population Bomb, was published back in the late 60s or early 70s that really spelled, spelled that out. And as you say, politicians have been studiously avoiding the subject almost ever since. Um, but uh, it, it's a, um, a huge issue because it also reflects upon uh, the re uh, global resources, food production, you know, water usage, and so on and so forth. And that uh, people have, uh, amongst the many projections into the future, people have talked about it, the fact that it's more likely to be water wars rather than than oil wars, and that uh, places like Canada are going to get very, very popular <laughs> because of all the, all the fresh water that they have, uh, and that uh, the the human population is now over seven billion, and that uh, you know it's, it's it's a rising curve. So that uh, ways that we can we can flatten the curve out, and and yet still um, look, you know, look after the the because also the aging. The, the average age of populations is also increasing, so the the larger number of of uh, elder people and the the longer lifespan, as they say, that uh, sixty is the new forty, <laughs> eighty is the new sixty. You know, I mean, I don't know anybody who reaches the age of sixty and and really um, uh, is sort of uh, functioning in a way of, of sort of uh, wrapping up their life and slowing down. They're all kind of okay. You know, what's the next project? <laughs> And I'm almost 60 myself, so. <laughs> and I, 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 I see that just within my own life, you know, I'm be 57 soon, but the, 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 the perceptions and forms are like, you know, uh, you don't really slow down or think, okay, it's, it's sort of, your life is winding up now, whereas 30, 40 years ago, that was normal, someone who's 60, that's okay, that's, you know, your life is winding down, there's not much longer to go, so uh, think of it in those terms. So ways that we can support and, and integrate the, uh, and the aging population and also in providing medically, uh, socially as well as medically for that, for that population is, is an important element too. So, any other questions? 
the water and the fire. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit more, explain a bit more about the wind? Wind. Yeah. Well, the wind or air element um, that represents um, vibration and uh, the um, that uh, the, the the quality of of um, uh, of um, say within within the, the human body, it would be the the, uh, the air that we breathe in and out. Uh, also, the just the, the the atmosphere of the of the air uh, of the world that we we live in. Um, this the uh, the nature of all matter is that you know all the the molecules, electrons, and so forth. The, the uh, electrons, protons, neutrons, right at that most um, tiny level, are all sort of in, are all vibrating and in a, in a um, uh, state of oscillation. So that. Uh, the air element is talking about that uh, vibratory quality that that all matter has. So it's not just like gas moving through the atmosphere or the air moving in and out of our lungs, but that um, yeah, so you could say, well, this chair is still, or this you know this uh, this microphone is, is is still. It's not doing anything. But if you put it under a, an electron microscope, you'd see the that everything is is um, uh, in a state of uh, of uh, vibration also. And so that that's uh, talking about the, the essentially um, kind of energetic or, or um, uh, so the um, the way that uh, that all uh, all matter and, and all things are in a state of change, and that, but in particular in terms of matter, that everything is in, has a kind of oscillatory quality. And then, in terms of its symbolism in relationship to the the, the foundations of mindfulness, then that that uh, quality of change, dhammanupasana, is like looking at all experience in in terms of the changingness of it. So it relates to um, looking at the uncertainty of life, because when we when we meet with uncertainty from a a place of of uh, self centeredness, then what we experience is fear. We're worried. I'm worried about what's going to happen next. We we hope it's going to be like this. We're afraid it's going to be like that. And so that um, that uncertainty, that changingness of the of the world or, or of things, uh, of our minds or or the 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 minds of people around us, that when we meet that that uh, uncertainty from a place of of, of uh, ego centeredness. The result is fear and and anxiety, insecurity. But it, it's also um, the the uh, recognition of uncertainty uh, of change is also the gateway to wisdom. So that when uh, developing Buddhist meditation, um, the the Buddha encourages the development of the reflection that everything is uncertain, everything's in a state of change. That the, the, to look at the quality of anicca. That things are impermanent. So when people first come across this, they say, "Why would the Buddha want us to consider that everything's impermanent? You know, did he want us to be anxious? You know, was he just trying to make us feel you know, <laughs> insecure?" But when uh, uh, when that quality of change and uh, uncertainty, the 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 um, uh, that unstable nature of of all things, both physical and mental, when that's 
appreciated from a, a from a non-egocentric position, then it's recognized. Well, of course, everything's in a state of change. How could it not be? <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's natural and inescapable that things are are, are fluid. They're changing. They're they're unstable. That's how it's always been. That's how it always will be. Of course, and so. Uh, when that quality of uncertainty and, and change is recognized from um, like a, a, a place of, of wisdom, not from a self-centered position, but more recognizing, of course, this is how this is how life is, then the effect is one of liberation. And uh, so, uh, our teacher Ajahn Chah he he would say that uh, the the reflection on or to to reflect upon uncertainty. That is the, the, the pathway of the noble ones. So if to, to really liberate your heart, to arrive at a state of clarity and, and uh, wisdom and sort of nobility, if you like, um, the, the most effective gateway is to bring that uncertainty to mind. Because what that does is when we, uh, we are, are sort of attached to something that we think is ours, then if we rec- recollect, oh, this is changing, it's not really, I can't really keep it forever, then it helps to loosen that sense of ownership, or that uh, that feeling of oh, I'm, uh, I wish I hadn't, uh, I wish I could get hold of such and such. You know, I haven't got it, but I really like that. And uh, the, to reflect on uncertainty or change is to recognize, oh well, you know that what you're experiencing now is going to change. You won't always feel this way. You might feel a sense of lack, or or that something is missing from your life. But this feeling is going to change. So whether it's if it's a pleasant feeling. It encourages you to not get stuck on it. If it's a painful feeling, it encourages encourages you to not get burdened because it's it's gonna it's gonna transform. It's gonna change, and so uh, that active uh, in, uh, inviting of uh, the con- the consideration that everything is is unstable, is changing, that everything arises and ceases, that is uh, the the most uh, as i said the most effective gateway to to liberation to to wisdom so the um um bringing to mind that that quality of rise and fall that things are coming and going things are in a in a state of change they they go in a a, a vibratory or a, a cyclical nature that uh, that is a, a way of helping us to balance out our habits of of attachment Thank you. Yes. Um, it's really backtracking a little bit. It's going back to the subject of population, but it's specifically it's about um, how we in the Western world approach and deal with death. Um, I do some voluntary work, and um, so I have contact with people who are seriously ill, and at the moment I'm working in a bereavement department. And I find that um, it's something that it doesn't seem to affect people from the East so much, but in the West, we tend to have a very frightened approach to the subject of death. We're not able to um, accommodate it. It comes upon us suddenly very often. um, Even though people are very ill, the fact that they're going to die sort of comes as a much bigger shock, I think, for us here in the mm-hmm. West. So it's really the subject of death and our approach to it over here, um, which, I don't know, I think we've got it wrong, you know, because, 
I mean, I've got a vested interest because I've got white hair and I'm getting old. But um, I actually think that it's something that we need to have a debate about. Very recently there's been this thing where Julia Neuberger has um, chaired this committee and she said about bringing to an end the Liverpool care pathway. Now, I've had a little bit of experience of that. So I know that for some people it was actually, it worked quite well. I understand that there's got to be an individual approach to it. But I still think that underlying it all, there's something about us in the West that makes us very, very frightened, even of the idea of death. You know, it's there somewhere, but it's not me and it's not now. Mm -hmm. uh, can you say anything about that? How long have you got? <laughs> no pun intended. Right? <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those really interesting things how we use phrases like, you know, if something should ever happen to me. So, let, let's count the conditionals. <laughs> if something should ever happen is kind of a real thing. <laughs> yeah. should, if something should ever we don't say when I die. Yeah, it's it's sort of impolite at dinner parties to to bring up that fact. But that's the that's the fact. And so, like, if I say the words now, every single person in this hall is going to die. Now, for how many of us is the first thought on hearing that like, oh, that's not right, or no, it must be mistaken. Like, and how many of us have thought that during the course of this afternoon? Oh, you know, we thought, oh, you know, nice temperature today, or, um, oh, Ladar's tea is really great, I forgot about that. But it doesn't cross the mind in the ordinary flow of things, oh, everybody here is going to die one day. We don't think that way. So, uh, the more that we can think that way, <laughs> and the more that uh, we are in incorporating the consciousness of death and the inevitability of it in a very matter-of-fact, you know, and natural uh, uh, fashion as we're growing up uh, when we're children you know, at school as we grow up that that becomes more and more woven into the picture then we don't need to, to clothe all of our, uh, our um, thoughts about the area in a whole slew of conditionals and, and uh, bufferings that uh, uh, because we know it's, it's going to happen one day it's not, it's not debatable it's uh, it's not it shouldn't be a shock, and that uh, it's it's uh, really bringing it into the the, the whole sort of community consciousness from from early times, and, and uh, so in schools, in the family, and in the, in the sort of general pool of things, not look upon it as some um, some horrible thing that happens to other people, and that somehow I'm not sure how, but I might be, might get away with it. <laughs> It's not going to happen to me, or if it does, it's going to be over the horizon. Um, and uh, the, it's, it's this mysterious thing, like I was saying to our friend here about about Anicca, you know, the impermanence. It can feel like it's a sort of, you know, you know from when you you relate to it from a um, an ego-centered point of view, it can seem very you know, threatening and anxiety-producing. But when you relate to it with a uh, from an, a, a non-self-centered perspective. Then it's like, well, well, of course, you know, duh, you know, how how could things not be changing? You know, the, and similarly with with 
the presence of death when we relate to it from a from self-centered perspective it's there's a a reaction of threat and avoidance and somehow we we pretend we manage to pretend it's not going to happen to us um and that uh <clears throat> when we are able to to bring the attention to that and to say no <laughs> that that's this is not this is not avoidable um then uh, it it in this mysterious way just like the, the with the the attention on to to change in a general way it actually it relieves the heart of a lot of anxiety in the same way when you when you accept the fact this body's going to die one day then the experience is one of oh <laughs> uh the, the you're you're no longer sort of trying to fend it off and prevent it from coming in but you're you're more able to you find a, a quality of ease and uh, and freedom because of that but this is also this is not just a uh a, a western cultural reflex you know this is also uh something that uh has is there in the asian mindset and all around the world as far as i understand and one of the reasons why that the buddha established sort of reflections on i'm of the nature to age i'm of the nature to sicken i'm of the nature to die all that is mine beloved and pleasing will become otherwise that uh, because we have this instinctual uh, averting of our attention we don't want to think that way we don't want to, to know about that so um uh and because of we, we want to turn our attention away and not think about it then we act we empower that and we make it we demonize it and we're afraid of it coming in but when we kind of turn towards it and say oh yes i'm of the nature to die <laughs> all that is mine beloved and pleasing will become otherwise will become separated from me right <laughs> that's not anything going wrong that's that's the way life works that's the way nature is nothing is going wrong in that so when we turn towards it it's like you you put the lights on and then that you know the demon that was there in the shadows is is re, you know is revealed to be a a mouse or <laughs> or just the curtains rustling there there's a a passage in the uh the mahabharata uh which is the, the great indian mythic um story great ep epic and at a certain point that the the five pandava brothers have been exiled to the forest and um they've come across this mysterious lake and four of them have dropped down dead and the one remaining brother is being questioned by this voice out of the the uh, the the mist uh, and uh, this voice is asking the, the 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 last brother standing you know a series of questions and he has to get them all right and if he gets them right then every all the others will come back to life if he gets one wrong then they're all finished so there's a certain pressure <laughs> But one of the questions that the the voice asks him is what is the most uh, strange and mysterious thing in the world and he says the most strange and mysterious thing in the world is that even though every single one of us will, en will enter the halls of death every single one of us thinks it won't happen to us this is the right answer <laughs> <laughs> so right there you know in the in the indian mythic times of you know the the buddha's era uh, era and before that same kind of um uh uh denial of death uh was in the mix and i think it's it's something that we've evolved as uh, as hum you know, homo sapiens sapiens as we 
uh, develop the thinking mind that can remember the past, can project into the future, in order to get through a day, <laughs> we in, in a sense had to sort of shut off the fact that we're going to die, and that we had to be able to do that because uh, for uh, it, uh, this is just my pocket theory, and this is not really substantiated, but uh, I think that we develop that uh, that repressive uh, reflex so that we could live without getting depressed about the fact that all of our works and efforts are all going to turn to dust in the future. Because we could imagine that, then we needed to be able to switch it off. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't function. There's a, just a, another little literary reference. Kurt Vonnegut, in, I think it's... Um, uh, Let's see, I think it's in Slaughterhouse-Five. He has these, uh, these beings from a different planet, the Tralfamadorians. And uh, they live for about 30,000 or 50,000 years. And the, when, when tra a Tralfamadorian gets marooned on Earth, and this little Tralfamadorian is totally amazed at the fact that even though the human life is just, just, uh, just, a, few, just a handful of decades, I mean, it's no time at all, they manage to go through each day and just assuming they're going to live for 30,000 years, like, <laughs> like they will. But they, you know, this is incredible. They're just like, they're hardly around for any time at all. And yet, they all seem to manage to, be, to ignore it and just be quite cheerful going through their days and, and not aware of the fact that the axe is going to fall at any moment. How marvelous. How do they do that? <laughs> so it's Vonnegut's way of reflecting upon that. that. So the, the, what the Buddha's um, encouragement is doing is saying, yes, we have this reflex that helps us to push it away. But that reflex is also harmful in that it stokes this um, self-centered anxiety. It stokes this kind of um, demonizing of death. And that uh, when, you are, when you're sort of spiritually mature enough to be able to, to turn to it and face it, the result won't be anxiety and depression. But the, the result will be uh, a, a kind of um, uh, natural response, uh, uh, responsiveness and a, a readiness to make use of the time that you have in a in a skillful way, and not be living in a in fear of a and a sense of threat at the imminence of death. That you're you're in a, in a way recognizing the the naturalness of that, so it's there, but you're not uh, creating you know, fear or anxiety around it. In terms of population. <laughs> Um, yeah, the uh, I'm not sure quite ha uh, how that that fits together with the um, with the you know the, the the arising of people in the world. But certainly, the more that people can live contentedly with an aging body, and so that the old the the years of uh, at the end of life are not riddled with anxiety and um, and depression, then you know the the better the you know the, the better the quality of life is for people as the the years advance, and so I feel that's a, a an important thing, and that the the uh, the mental and physical well-being of the population is sustained without having a, a larger number of the the young to to help um, support it. could just make one comment. I think we've become conditioned a bit to think that medicine can cure all ills and that doctors are miracle workers. 
you know, we have this sort of expectation as we get older. We might have the knowledge that our bodies are going to wear out, but we somehow come to think because of the great medical care we've had over the last 20, 30, 40 years, that somehow we can avoid death. So there is that sort of uh, conditioning of mind which has come in. And in fact, just very recently, uh, and in the last couple of days, there's been a thing in the paper which said there have been a greater number of deaths over the last few years of elderly people than should have happened um, because of um, you know the figures that, that, that their normal stats, we're actually seeing more and more older people dying. And the, the suggestion was that it was because we have been brought up in an era of antibiotics and these wonderful medicines and that possibly the effect, the beneficial effect of that within the wider population might now be coming to an end. Um, so that we may actually be reverting more to three score years and ten <laughs> than, you know, living to be 90 and 100, uh -huh. you know, because of that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but um, they, uh, over, uh, I hadn't read that report myself. It's interesting. Uh, they also... Um, are busy hunting for the um, aging genes and the uh, the, the death gene. Uh, quite specifically, you're looking to to find the aging gene and how to, to switch it off. <laughs> That'll be popular. Someone gets a <laughs> anybody who gets the the, the copyright on that, <laughs> it's going to be very very rich. <laughs> and uh, you know the how many stories over the centuries have been about. Uh, the avoidance of death, and you know the people trying to find ways of of staying alive forever, and uh, the conquest of death. Uh, the um, yeah, I, I have no 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 sense of how things will will work in terms of the antibiotics no longer functioning. But uh, human ingenuity being what it is, <laughs> there's there's like a constant sort of arms race between. Yeah, extending the life through um, through so better diet or through chemical means and and through you know, medical treatment along the way, and then also new viruses, new difficulties, new things uh, uh, arising. You know, uh, it seems to be though so far that the lifespan has been steadily extending you know, year by year over the last three or four decades, with, with quite markedly, and uh, so I see that progression. Uh, <laughs> Martin, would you want to use the microphone? Yeah, I, I'd like to follow up on some of the interesting questions we've had. It, it, it's always a, a source of amazement. Um, only, only in the course of the last, I think, 40 years or so, uh, in my case, that the uh, wisdom of the ancients is, has been so much coincides with the way things are. Um, as you said in the Mahabharata, that wasn't that was something very interesting. Uh, and um, when I was just beginning school um, or grammar school, anyway, um, I learned that science was knowledge 
certain knowledge. And uh, we've almost cracked it. We've, we, we've split the atom. We've almost got it. We've almost there. And uh, it's only later that I, I learned about um, Anicca and, of course, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Um, Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, the astronomer, was he was asked about, does he understand Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? He said, well, I, I think I do. <laughs> uh, the... Other, other point was, uh, so science does come very much in accord. Scientific method, which is what science is, it's not just knowledge, it's admitting that you're quite possibly wrong. Um, but this is the best we can do with what we know. Uh, the uh, other, other thing is about the population uh, that um, somebody else said that if it was any other species which was populating the Earth like Homo sapiens, we would call it a plague. And when I was um, about to, about around about 70 years ago, when I was thinking of embarking on, on a profession, my, my father, who was very keen on, um, he did have very much an ethical background of what, what was right. And he said, well, there are only three types of profession, types of things you can do uh, with a clear conscience. Uh, one is to feed the hungry. Another one is to clothe the naked. He said, I do that. He was a tailor. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the last one is to heal the sick. So I thought, well, I work to heal the sick. And I spent all my working life doing that. And now... I realize that with all the, the work which, to which I have contributed to, in a very small way, uh, I've been creating the problem, extending people's lives. <laughs> and, now, and now that I'm just past my 80th birthday, I realize that not only have I created the problem, but I am the problem. <laughs> <laughs> So it is, a, it is a quandary. Mm -hmm. And the, the Dhamma does expect, it does help us to understand and realize that we're probably wrong anyway. <laughs> and uh, just to accept things as they are and do our best. Mm. Very good. The, uh, one of the, the uh, things, I, I don't like to think in terms of problems. But, uh, because that's already a bit of a value judgment, but I like to recast such things as interesting difficulties. So, Because as soon as you call it a problem, then it's, uh, that in a way, you're casting it as something that shouldn't be, but rather, okay, here this is, now how can we receive this as it is, and then uh, steer it towards the situation, and whatever it might be, towards something that is uh, is beneficial and, and to the, the say the the most of mutually helpful and agreeable uh, of ends, and so that uh, <coughs> that uh, uh, is and a couple of years ago when we had uh, Lumpo Liam coming to visit here, he, you know, he he made this, this this kind of response and someone said to him, 
Yeah, Lumpur, what, what kind of uh, difficulties or what problems did you, have you experienced in your monastic training? And he said, first of all, well, yeah, when I was younger there was a, a lot of fear, so that was a problem, but actually it's not, it's not good to think in terms of, of, of problem. So you know, these, are, these are interesting challenges. And that he said it's like in a sport, you know, when you're, you're playing a sport, if you're just playing against the, like the, the school B team, you know, you don't really have to try very hard. You know, the, the, but if you're, if you're playing against the local champions, you've got to really raise your game. So that this is how we should look, uh, rather than saying this is a problem that we want to get rid of, use it as an opportunity to raise your game. Now, I forget what the Thai expression was for that, but <laughs> he, he said it's and because he said actually, if you look at it like that, you realize actually these uh, si these uh, uh, situations are um, something to be grateful for, because you wouldn't really make that effort unless you had to, <laughs> and that they stretch you that these. Uh, so-called problems, they, they stretch you uh, in ways that y you would never, uh, you would never do on your own initiative, and so that you you learn lessons uh, that you would never learn otherwise. He said. So therefore, uh, it's it's something to be grateful for, and that uh, because this is how you really learn and and make the valuable changes in yourself. So that's the challenge. <laughs> Okay, well, we've reached uh, four o'clock, so let's uh, leave it there for today. Thank you for your your kind attention. And uh, the um, those of you who weren't here earlier today, we have um, uh, we had an open day yesterday, some, uh, and also it was Lumpur Sameda's birthday. So some people are asking, has he died? So, <laughs> so we might have done, but not, not that I know of. But he was he was still alive yesterday, so it was his. Uh, Lumpur Sameda's 79th birthday yesterday, and we had an open day um, to uh, uh, make the um, monastery available for the, well, um, it's always available to, uh, to invite the local community from all around the area uh, to come and have a look at the monastery, also to look at the plans that we have been drawing up for the um, uh, redevelopment of the site over the next 30 years. So any of you who are interested in taking a look at that, if you go to the uh, the Ubon room, just at the other corner of the, beyond the courtyard, there's a little sign at the steps saying open day exhibition. So do take a look in there and um, have a look at the displays and fill out the feedback form if you're so inclined. That'd be very, very helpful. And uh, anyway, have a good day. I look forward to seeing you all next week. <laughs>